The Viewpoint, 8 to 10 p.m. Flipping conventional wisdom on its head. Songhezo Mapepe on SAFM. He is known as many things, but to Nicole Westpal Klinkrat, it's her husband, and their doting child is on the way sometime in June, July. So happy birthday then to a mate I've known now for what, since 98, 22 years, Kevin Klinkrat. All the best, my man. Thanks very much for being the good friend that you have been all these years. I look forward to chatting to you tomorrow. Obviously, for the same reason, I'm giving you the shout out. Today, let's chat then to Ms. Sanusha Naidu. China's commercial activities in Africa, such as investments, infrastructure projects, and bank lending, have long attracted scrutiny and criticism. China is now facing growing pressure to forgive the tens of billions of dollars of loans it has made to African countries since the early 2000s. The mistreatment of African residents in China during the outbreak has fueled cries of racism and prompted diplomatic protests against Beijing. Lest we forget Wuhan. Where would we be without it today? That's a fascinating question. Dare to answer it. Ms. Naidu, good evening. Good evening, Sangezi, and thank you for the invitation. China. Right now, a lot is suspended the world over, not least Mm -hmm. Africa's relations and diplomatic overtures and exchanges and all of those things that were just part and parcel of our life for the last two decades with China. Some were suspended. Good yeah, or bad? I, mean, I think, you know, the narrative on China has really evolved. I mean, initially, you know, the, the relationship that, and then if we take the context of China's relationship with Africa, has always been one of ambivalence in terms of the narrative uh, where Western media and other media spaces uh, inside and outside of the continent have warned against this opportunistic relationship that could actually um, emerge and that could be kind of harmful for the continent. And then, of course, the more kind of optimistic engagement. I think today where you're seeing the narrative on China, it, it's much more uh, around, again, the, the, the global debates about this power house that essentially is it responsible for the way in which um, the pandemic of the COVID-19 has emerged, but also in terms of the responsibility and the footprint of this of this act. And I think if you go back and you look at, um, you know, famous quote by Napoleon Bonaparte that said, there lies a sleeping giant when stirred will shake the world, uh, more or less in that context. Mm. I think this is where we are currently around um, the kind of um, the polarizing views that exist in terms of taking a very kind of pessimistic approach and, of course, an optimistic approach. And, of, and, and within that context of the narrative, you're beginning to see the cautionary, the cautionary uh, tales about, you know, don't let China come in, or the more optimistic tales that China is our all-weather friend. And I think we've got to be realistic and pragmatic about this relationship, whether we're talking about it in the context of China's footprint globally or its footprint in the continent, is to be be realistic about the fact that China is an actor that has self-interest, and those self-interests will be prioritized in any engagement that uh, that China crafts with any country in the world. And I think today uh, questions are being raised again about the cautionary tales and the more optimistic tales of China and the engagement that China crafts with countries around the world. Self-interest of China, that's exactly the nub of probably what this debate has to center on. What is Africa's interest in China? That's a question not just for Ms. Naidu, who is our guest on the line. It's a question to you too, who sits at home. What is China's interest? 
on the continent. And I would be especially interested in the views of African nationals who are listening in on this conversation, wherever in the world you may be, and give us reference points to your continent or to your country, I beg your pardon, as to how Chinese or the Chinese people have introduced themselves and moreover established themselves. And to what extent are the relations between your people, as in your nationals and China, specifically focusing on what my guest, Ms. Sanusha Naidu, refers to as the self-interest of China. 0891-104-207. Voice notes 0614-104-107. The rules do not change. Phone calls. I had a complaint. Phone calls will be a minute. You start talking, a minute later we drop the phone. Voice notes, 40 seconds. Sanusha, answer that question, please, for our guests so far who will be joining in. What fundamentally is China interested in? China is like any other country. It has interests that will serve its national priorities. So if you look, if you, if you want to characterize the engagement that China has in the world today, it can be characterized upon particular time frames, looking at it from the period of 1949, where there was this whole kind of diplomatic attempt by uh, Mao Zedong, the first um, uh, leader of the, of the independent China uh, after 1949, that wanted to make China this important actor in terms of the communist world and in terms of how to send its messaging across the, the, the world in terms of being this actor that can, can have economic development, social development. We see that there have been, uh, been challenges. There were difficulties you know, under, the, under, the, under the leadership of Mao. There, it wasn't smooth sailing. Then, of course, you had the whole kind of uh, famine in the 1950s where the, the collectivization programs didn't work. Uh, hunger became, a, became a, uh, an underlying condition in China. And then, of course, you saw the internal dynamics change in the governance structure and then of course you got this whole question of internal party politics then of course the rise of Deng Xiaoping taking the China to the world but taking it in the terms of separating the politics from the economics the modernization of the of the Chinese economy and then of course the the the, the kind of uh, special economic zones the economic program the model etc around the 1990s um, after the end of the Cold War and how that changed its relationship to the rest of the world. I'm basically you know, uh, doing a, a, a very rough mm, mm. overview of this. But I think the, 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 the challenge for us is to contextualize what is China, who is China, and how does China behave. And as much as we may want to lump it in particular narratives, we need to unpack the narratives, but also unpack the engagement that China has with the world. Today, it's, it's, it's a veritable force in global international politics Absolutely. and in the global political economy of the world. Its markets are imp- uh, the market it has is important. It was the driver of, of the global economy for, for many years, uh, considered to be the workshop of the world. And that's part of its historical uh, uh, economic development and the policies that it uh, put into place. It's also a key driver of, of the way globalization works. You know, globalization is the interconnectivity of uh, of our political, economic, social, technological, and environmental dynamics, and that is both positive and negative. It was a key act. It's a key actor in the WTO. I mean, I think to a large extent. I just uh, saw a lovely book review on. uh, It's called Schism, and I and I and, and the author escapes from mine now. But it's really around how the Clinton administration. Um, 
proactively negotiated with China's uh, with China and how it's entering into the WTO was really about the, the the U.S. getting and tapping into the Chinese market. There's also a talent pool that that, that the U.S. drew on, and so a lot of the things that we're seeing today about cautionary tales and asking questions about you know is China someone to be scared of and is the bogey person in the global economy. We need to look at the context of negotiations that took place. Yes. We only can get the deals we negotiate if we negotiate bad deals. And that in itself is something that I think interest is, is, is an underlying question to that, but not just interest. I think linked to interest is the question of agency. And in Africa, I think it's, 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 it's coming to the fore, not only with Africa's partnership with China or engagement with China, but with all external partnerships. How do you actually bring your agency to the table? Because you have what the other wants. And what the other ones in, in before this COVID-19 pandemic um, is the commodities. Now, we've seen the commodities ebb and flow. We've seen the price of the commodities uh, get into very, very uh, unprecedented uh, pricing in terms of the global markets. And that has had a deflationary and sometimes a serious impact on, on resources. I want to interrupt countries. you there, Sanusha, because I need to sort of tailor it in not just from a Chinese global perspective, but particularly from Africa. The influence that China wields politically on the continent must surely, I mean, of the many narratives that are out there, one of them is that China politically has a stronghold, however it may have arrived at that point, on African leaders. What would your response to that be? As I said to you, it's what you negotiate. If you negotiate your space away, then you're in giving your agency to the other. And as much as I'm not saying that China is, doesn't have an influential footprint in the continent and can use that footprint to, to pressurize uh, the other into what it wants, I think it's also important to recognize that China's footprint in Africa also resembles traditional a traditional partners' footprint in Africa, where the kinds of deals that you that you're seeing emerge, the kind of engagement that you're seeing emerge, is very asymmetric. It's not it's not an equal partnership, and we've got to be very. Uh, uh, realistic about it, that it's an asymmetrical engagement, that China does have particular levers that it pushes, whether it comes to the access to the resources, whether it comes to uh, questions of development cooperation, whether it comes to soft power diplomacy, etc. And I think in Africa, the, 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 the real challenge is where is the leadership in, in negotiating these external partnerships? And we know there's been attempts in terms of what you can negotiate and how you negotiate. Right now, one of the things that you mentioned in your introduction was the question of the debt uh, issue, the debt that Africa may be re-indebting itself with the loans, etc., with, with, with China. Yes, indeed. I think it is something that is important to reflect on. But that influence that China has on your economic and political space is something that you can only negotiate away from. And if you negotiate that to your to your to, to your ex, to your partner, then the the question becomes: Is why do you do that? Let's is it because points. you think China will not be cannot be pushed? That China cannot be uh, negotiate, or you cannot negotiate with China on an equal footing because you have something they want. Up sure. until now, you had commodities that they wanted, particularly in resource-rich countries. The other point about the debt. Before issue you get on to the other point, let, let's just take some calls, point. please, um, then, Sanusha. Let's take Abongile in Port Elizabeth. Good evening, Abongile. Your time, please, starts now. All right. Thank you. Good evening, sir. 
You see, uh, I, I think uh, on the discussion, uh, I've observed uh, China's uh, influence in Africa on a numerous occasions. I think, firstly, their intention, uh, I can say in principle, some they would love to see Africa rising economically and politically. But the moment they came to Africa uh, and have an influence uh, in implementing those principles, they become too greedy to such an extent that they exploit the workforce. That's their, that, that's their, that's their first thing when they arrive in Africa. They exploit the workforce that is in Africa. And they don't, uh, they don't regulate uh, the workforce as it requires by the labor laws and everything and the legislation of the Africans. Now, it, you will find it difficult for us... Ten uh, seconds. Have, all right. Is my time finished? Ten seconds. All right. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Putabongilo. Appreciate your Thank time. You, Tembelitle, equally, by Mambozini. Your time starts now. Good evening. All right. Look, man, I really don't, don't, don't really like the, the, what's going on between Africa and China because China is really using Africa. I, I, one would have, would have thought that after Africa being colonized by Western countries and then African people became poor and poor because of that Western, China would come with a change, whether through paying their workers good, but you didn't expect that of China, whereas they don't even pay their own citizens very good. You, you, if you look at China, China has a, a problem of not wanting any voice. Even this pandemic, why did they even close the wet, uh, uh, wet market if this thing has no link on it? So there's a lot of untold things about China. We shouldn't praise China. China is really becoming a danger to, to, to the world. And one way or another, they are the puppet of the West. Of the West. China are a puppet of the West. Is that what you are saying? No, no, no. China is the puppet of the Western countries, like Americans and, and Europeans. Because the investors, they go to them and come to Africa. You understand what I'm trying to say? I understand what you're saying. Not that I agree yeah. with it, but I'm going to allow Mr. Sanusha Naidu to have a response to that, specifically that last point. Before we go to you, though, Sanusha, just make a note of that. Is China puppet of the West? Romeo Heidelberg, good evening. Good evening to you, my brother. How are you this evening? And your, your time guest? is counting. I'm well, thanks. How are you? Okay, my question is, should we trust China in the continent ever since China dominated in the continent soon after the West and the European uh, certainly uh, changed their minds of investing much more in, uh, in, 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 in the continent? Should we trust China, considering the fact that recently, about three or four or five months ago, when Germany commented about the way China is investing in Africa, they warned that Africa is falling into a debt trap. Should we trust China in their system of investing? Fantastic. That's going to be your response there, Ms. Naidu. Should we trust the Chinese model of investing in Africa? That's the thought of Romeo. We'll take our final caller on this particular matter, Bafana in Stanga, KwaZulu-Natal. Good evening, Bafana. Bafana? Hey, how's it, man? Shabunjan. Zakalaka, boss. Hey, Tadda. Bafana from Stanga in Kateren. 
Listen, boss, I need to participate on this show about this uh, China and Africa business partnership. Uh, my take on this is when you make an investment, obviously you want to have some return. Obviously now China is putting more money in Africa as a continent. Then what about the return? How are we going to be able to pay all this interest in care to us? Thank you. Thank Fantastic. Short and sweet. Bafana, good evening. A couple of thoughts. I mean, is China exploiting Africa? Do they have these exploitative tendencies that are at odds with us as Africans as hosts? That's essentially what Abongile and Tembilita had said. Romeo simply doesn't trust the Chinese model of investment. And you heard what Bafana said. Your responses, please, Sanusha. Okay, starting with the, the first uh, caller. And I think it was the question of, um, uh, I didn't look first for the second caller, but is, it, is China a puppet of the West or, or thereabouts. I, I think that um, we've got to go back and ask the question, would China would like to be labeled as the puppet of the West? And I think that's a strong, there's a strong adversity to that point because uh, one of the challenges that China has is that its model of development actually replicates how the West actually increased its development and its own model of development. And that's a challenge for the Chinese model of development because it's replicating that, but it's not a puppet of the West. It would like to say that its own identity and its own independent development has taken place in terms of how it took advantage of structural conditions. It is a challenge. I would say that it is a challenge in terms of what's coming through in, your, in the callers and, and, and what's coming through as a, as a very consistent theme is perceptions of China. And these perceptions are essentially based on what people see, what people read, and, of course, the, the experiences that they had. And, and this leads very nicely into the second question around trust, because, you know, you don't trust the, the, the Chinese, but do you trust the West? So you could raise those two, those two kind of uh, views as a juxtaposition to each other and ask the question again uh, around that. And the third point around the deal, uh, the, the, who's going to pay back the kinds of equipment, etc., is a very important one because if you go back and you look at who, what, what, what level of concessional finance Africa gets and how much debt it has to repay, I think the concessional finance it gets through the IFIs is about 7 or 8% of, uh, of debt that they have to pay back in terms of the concessional finance debt financing arrangement. But when it comes to China, it's around 4%. But we've got to watch that because that could also increase. So the, the, the model in itself is a question of whether China has just replicated a model that it has seen working for itself. And then, of course, looking at how that model is applied in, in, its, in its expansion in other countries. But it's also a question around the perceptions of how people view the Chinese. And I think this is a serious this is a serious point that the Chinese need to understand around diplomacy and how it deals with public diplomacy on the messaging of what its intentions, its uh, engagements, and, and the impact it is. But we also cannot be blinkered on this and assume that the, all of the power is in the hands of the Chinese. I think we've got to also be, bear in mind that they also are elites in Africa that facilitate these kinds of engagements. Mm, that is true. Let's talk now specifically in these COVID times, because, I mean, a lot of what has been discussed is essentially the narrative that has always been about China, not necessarily driven by COVID. But because we are in times of COVID now, a lot of the exchanges, if I can put it that way, be it political, diplomatic, economic, call it what you will, they have been suspended, at least certainly mm -hmm. halted somewhat. 
does this not offer Africa two glorious opportunities to, first of all, look inward for the purposes of developing its Africa continental free trade area, for the purposes of making sure that these narratives either about the West or China do not gain any more traction than they already do enjoy, and this is an opportunity to build internal continental capacity in line with the free trade agreement, one. Two, for instance, Madagascar is going on quite strongly about how umflonyana, I keep forgetting that English word, but it's this plant, which for them has worked or is working, or at least that's the narrative going around in fighting COVID-19 and how it has sent a lot of that batch into the continent. For the purposes of Africa being responsible, and responsive to her challenges. Is this not a golden opportunity to just suspend or freeze global external stuff from Africa and think deeply about ourselves as a people and respond to each other much better, of course, made possible by COVID? I think it's an absolute vital opportunity, Sandhya, to be able to use this, 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 this time to reflect on what you're talking about as uh, important reimagining of industrial capacity and, and, and policy. And that industrialization uh, is not something that is new, but it's definitely a way in which you can recalibrate the way your, your, your strengths in terms of the engagement. I mean, one of the things that we found, that, that uh, studies have found is that uh, the global economy today is going through an unprecedented economic crisis. People are predicting it's going to be the worst depression ever to see uh, both in the 20th and the 21st century. But it also is an opportunity for, for, for African countries to reimagine their economic growth models and, of course, their industrial growth paths. And I think the points you raised are vital to that. Now, when it comes to the African Continental Free Trade Agreement, it's still, you know, we haven't reached the point where we, we, we are seeing implementation of it because there's still um, elements of that and institutional elements of the, of, the, of the CFTA that would need to be resolved, particularly questions around rules of origin uh, and, and different, and, and different uh, pathways around the trade in, in services and, of course, the industrial uh, capacity and so forth, and cross-border trade. That's one of the key things I think African countries need to start thinking about, because what's inherent to start trading with yourself, and where Africa's intra-African trade is really low, mm. is on trading with itself. This is because of deficient cross-border and transnational border Extremely. spaces. The, the, the infrastructure is weak, the, the, the transport corridors are weak, and this is where the, the imagination needs to come in, and of course the pragmatic policy implementation needs to come in. On the question of whether we can completely isolate ourselves from the international economy, I think that's going to be a bit more difficult. I wasn't to sure do. if that was the question. I was just talking about if whether or not we shouldn't perhaps look at ourselves much bigger and better than we currently have been, if you like, looking at the European model and how, for the most part, there is great cooperation, not to suggest at all that they are isolated. But let's move the conversation on because I think you've responded quite well otherwise. African migrants in China. Do Chinese nationals respect Africans in China the way Africans in Africa certainly give them their dues as human beings? Your views. Um, I think there'll be there'll be differentiated responses to that, and I think there are differentiated uh, views 
an, an opinions on that. I think that there will be some people who will agree with your statement and others who will disagree with your statement. I think what you are referring to are the recent issues that emerged in Guangzhou around the treatment of African uh, uh, nationals in Guangzhou, particularly the reaction to uh, African nationals around uh, whether or not people were reacting to, to African nationals in terms of uh, the racism and the discriminatory. Um, and this is an ongoing debate around whether or not um, the treatment of African nationals, whether as students or traders or other, uh, or other spaces in, Africa, uh, in China, whether that there, there's a question of, you know, is there a uniform approach or is there a diversified approach? And I think here is where the experiences of African nationals living in China or having lived in China and come back will be important to share with us in order for us to get not just a more holistic perspective, but also what's happening on the ground. And those experiences on the ground are very important because I think it feeds into the narratives that we have been speaking about and re- referencing in this discussion, but also in terms of how you deal with public diplomacy. Uh, I think, again, for me, what's so critical about this debate is that it's not centered in one particular uh, 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 cohort of, of, of people. It's, di- it's, it's diversified around class, around leadership, around elites, around different gender and so forth. And I think identity in this is very important for us to bear in mind because uh, different identities come out to play. I, I know that we've been having this discussion because I've been in this China-Africa Africa China space. And I think even that is an important narrative that needs to be looked at, and not looking at it as China-Africa, but Africa-China. Um, and I've been in this for more than 15 years, and I can see that these narratives are coming back again and again around perceptions, around the way people are treated. Um, but what also astounds me about this relationship is that the trade still takes place, whether it's at the macro level or at the micro level with traders moving goods back and forth. And one of the impacts of this is COVID-19 and the closing of, of borders or, the, or, or, or trying not to bring in goods from China because of the fear of what the impact this will have on the transmission of the virus. But, you know, looking at countries like Uganda, where at one point the trade minister or some, some minister in the economic cluster had said that you've got to think about how you trade now with China. So again, these are dynamics because it has an impact on livelihood on the one hand. People have used the opportunity uh, that China opens up in terms of the economic dimension, but there's also the social, social dimension and the questions of the social identity. Excellent. Thank you so much then for your thoughts, Ms. Sanusha Naidu, Senior Research Fellow at the Institute for Global Dialogue, giving us some bites as to will China still have strong relations in Africa post-COVID-19? Certainly we dealt quite a lot in terms of how Africa and China have been engaging. And she did lament, and I think quite correctly, that it is time for Africans to better negotiate themselves in these bilateral or even multilateral platforms, not least between China and the continent and the continent and Europe and the continent and America. Let's get some views from the listeners who have dropped in a couple of voice notes. Evening, man. My name is Anonymous. The European countries, man, and the Asian countries, man, they are the same. They came here in Africa, man, like it's, they are like humble lions, man. They offer, we give them a lot of diamonds, gold, mines, everything. But what they offer us here in Africa, man, I don't understand. They give us a small cup of what we give them. Like Asian countries, they always send toys here in Africa, cheap quality of goods. 
But there, if you go there in China, you won't find those kind of stuff there. Everything is original. Good evening, Songezo. China has um, dominated Asia. Africa is the second most populous continent in the world after Asia. So it's only strategic for China to then seek dominance in Africa economic-wise because there is a potential for a market. So I don't think there is any hidden intentions. I think really it's just a strategic move by China and in the process we benefit. So yes, we should be skeptical, but we should also be open to the opportunities that China investing in Africa might present. Thank you. Covenant in Bloom. John in Sanin, I am a Zimbabwean. The Chinese have looted most of our resources, taking minerals, etc. Also, how these Chinese treat the locals is just inhumane. As Zimbabweans, we're getting nothing out of the Zimbabwe-China relationship. Chinese are racist and want our minerals only and nothing else, and further come to damp their products on our continent. It's time for an ad break before we move with the conversation, talking at 2042-43, COVID and how it should reshape our retail sector. Mr. Tom Kwanazi, who is the CEO of WNR CETA, that is the Wholesale and Retail CETA, will be in conversation with us. Please stay tuned.